You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Um, when is the last time you had the chance to uh, go outside on a clear, dark night and look up into the sky? That is a mesmerizing view, isn't it? It's an amazing thing on a clear, dark night to look up and see the vastness of the universe. There is a reason that the psalmist says the heavens declare the glory of God. Scientists estimate, hear this number, that there are one billion trillion stars. I don't even know what that number means. There are one billion trillion stars in the observable universe. Uh, That is a one with 21 zeros behind it. That's a lot of zeros. That's a lot of stars. And it's it's interesting that if you're in the northern hemisphere, so the, the sort of side of the planet that we live on, if you're in the northern hemisphere, there is one star out of those one billion trillion stars There is one star that is unique among all the other stars, and it's a star that we call Polaris. Now, uh, why is it unique? Well, let's first of all locate it. Think constellations for a moment. Um, If you think of the big and the little dipper, um, Polaris is, uh, there should be a a picture up on the screen behind me, but Polaris is is the last star in the handle of the little dipper. It's that star. And that star is unique among all the other stars, among the one billion trillion stars. Now, what makes that that star unique, Polaris unique? Well, if you stood on the North Pole, so like on the dot that signifies you are in the spot called the North Pole, if you're right there and you um, look directly up over your head, you're going to find Polaris. Now, here's what that means for this particular star. It means that Um, Throughout the rest of the year, every other star that you can see in the northern hemisphere is going to be moving. Um, In this part of the year, you might find it there. In this part of the year, you might find it here. It's going to be moving throughout the year. But Polaris is the one star that you can look at all year long. Uh, It's the one star that stays perfectly in its place. It's the one star in the northern hemisphere that when you look at it and and you... um, hold out both arms, stretch out both arms. When you're looking at this star, you know my left hand's pointing west, my right hand's pointing east, and my face, my body is looking directly to the north. This is why we call Polaris the what? The North Star. Because it is always pointing north. It is a faithful, reliable way for us to gain our direction. And for centuries, uh, travelers, people who are sailing, people who are uh, traveling from one point to another would set their face toward Polaris to know, am I going in the right direction? They would use that particular star to orient themselves, to make sure they're heading in the right way. Now, let me back up and say this about a church, or really this is about every Christian, about your life, about my life, about our life collectively together in a church. Every church needs a North Star. When the seas of life have a way of pushing you to the left or pushing you to the right, we all need a a star we can look at to reorient ourselves. 
a place we can look to, to make sure, okay, we're going in the right direction. We're moving in the right way. We all need that. Individually as a Christian, we need that. As a church, every church needs a North Star. Every church needs a star that you can look at, hold your hands out, and know, okay, to my left is west, to my right is east, I'm facing north, I'm, I'm, here's my direction. Every church needs that. And our North Star, we summarize in a very simple phrase. Here's our North Star. We enjoy Jesus and we make disciples. That's our North Star. That, that's what we continually reorient ourselves around. This is how we set our direction. We enjoy Jesus and we make disciples. Now, this is our way of summarizing what Jesus um, wants from every church. It's just our particular language that we uh, use to say what Jesus wants from every church. It's a way of, of talking about the never-changing mission that Jesus has given us. We enjoy Jesus. I love the first question of the Westminster Catechism. Uh, question number one of that catechism is, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what's the purpose of man? Why did God put you on the planet? What is the chief end of man? Answer to the first question of the Westminster Catechism, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why God has put you on the planet. And that um, answer is even more helpful if you change the and and you, and you put in a by in its place. Now, what is the chief end of man? To, to glorify God by enjoying him forever. God has put you on the planet to glorify God, to make much of God. This is why you exist. As an image bearer, it's to faithfully reflect the God whose image we were made in. You exist to glorify God, and we glorify God by enjoying God, by finding a deep, durable delight in him. You were made for the enjoyment of Jesus. God designed your heart to be dazzled by God. That's the way you were made. God made you to enjoy Jesus. We enjoy Jesus and we make disciples. We give our life then to helping other people know and enjoy the person of Jesus, to help them grow up and mature in Jesus. And this is the work that God has called us to. This is the never-changing mission. This is what we're giving our, our time to. This is what we're giving our attention to. This is what we're giving our lives to. When we look to the future, this is the future God has out in front of us. This is what gets our heart pumping and really going. And if this resonates with you, if this gets your heart pumping, if this is what you want to be about, this is what you want to talk about, what you want to spend your life doing, we're just looking at you and saying, well, come on, let's go do that together. Let's enjoy Jesus and let's make disciples. This is the never-changing mission, the North Star by which we continually reorient ourselves. So uh, we're going to spend a couple of weeks uh, just looking at that North Star together. Next week, we're going to talk about the second part of that, uh, that we make disciples. Uh, this week, we're going to talk about the first part of that, that we enjoy Jesus. And to do that, I want to consider this one-verse parable straight from the lips of Jesus. You find it in Matthew 13, verse 44. Here's the one-verse parable. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has 
and buys the field. Now, let's just linger there uh, for a moment. And let's think that through. A man is in a field. Um, he has probably brought his shovel out into the field. He's got his shovel down into the ground. And to his great surprise, his shovel unexpectedly hits something solid. And he, you know, removes the dirt, dusts everything off. And to his surprise, he has unearthed a priceless treasure. It, it is more valuable than his house. It's more valuable than his wedding ring. It's more valuable than his car. It's more valuable than his Xbox. It's more valuable than everything he owns times 10,000. It's, it's the most valuable thing he has ever stumbled across in his life. It is a priceless treasure. So what, what does the man do? He sells everything. Everything. He, he sells it all. And I love that little phrase. It's not just that he sells it all. It's in his joy, he sells it all. He's selling it all, and he's thrilled about selling it all. He, he can't keep uh, that grin down. He, he's in there at the pawn shop, and he's selling his lawnmower for like a third of what he bought it for, and he just can't keep from smiling as he's doing it. He, he is so happy about the fact that he is letting go of everything and he's so happy about it because he knows as he is letting go of everything it's going to enable him to grab onto the treasure that he can enjoy forever that's the parable so what is the point of the parable what is this one verse parable i'm trying to teach us well the purpose of the parable is to convince us of this simple truth Jesus is a priceless treasure. That's the point of the parable. It's to look at you and say, Jesus is a priceless treasure. This parable is in the Bible to convince your heart of the truth of that claim. Jesus is a priceless treasure. This is our God. He is a priceless treasure. There's nothing more valuable than him. There is no one more valuable than him. There is nothing in the universe with the capacity to dazzle a human heart like the person of Jesus. Jesus, this priceless treasure brings a delight to our heart that is so deep and so durable that it ruins us for everything else. Everything else in our life becomes negotiable when we find this treasure. It, it's a delight that is so deep that we would gladly give away everything else in our life. And, and it's a gladly, like with a grin on our face, we would give away everything else in our life to get the treasure, Jesus, and enjoy him forever. That's the point of the parable. Now, here's what's amazing. When you uh, back up from that parable and you just begin to read the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, here is what you find. The truth of this parable shows up in human lives. Human lives begin to prove that this parable is actually true. So let me just give you uh, some examples of this. Think about um, our man Paul. And listen to how Paul talks in Ephesians chapter 3. It's crazy talk. I mean, it, it, you, when you read a verse like this, he's either crazy or he has found something that is beyond measure. Listen to how he talks, Philippians 3, 7 and 8. 
He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count the loss of everything. I count all of that loss as rubbish, as nothing, as trash, in order that I may gain Christ. Paul is proof of this parable's truth. Paul's found such a deep, durable delight in Jesus that it ruined him for everything else in his life. Everything else in his life was negotiable. And we talked last week a little bit about Paul. Um, when Paul is talking about suffering the loss of all things, this man isn't lying. I mean, he suffered the loss of a lot of things in his life. He suffered greatly for Jesus' sake. But even in all of these losses, he couldn't keep a grin from, from coming to his face, from breaking through. Now, why is that? Because Paul never got over the fact that he had discovered a priceless treasure, the person of Jesus that he would get to enjoy forever. So he talks like this. Uh, this is the reason um, David talks crazy. Uh, listen to Psalm 27. Uh, David says this, One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. So David is saying, here is the one thing I want. If I have to force rake everything in my life, like here is what I want more than all other things. Here is the one longing, the one desire that far outpaces every other desire. Here is the one thing I want. I want to see and I want to experience and I want to enjoy my God, this priceless treasure. I want to spend forever gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. Now, that word beauty is an attribute of God. So it is a way of talking about God, a way of, of communicating about God that he is the sum total of everything desirable in life, everything beautiful in life, that that all funnels down into and points to God who is ultimately beautiful. It's a way of saying that all of our longings and all of our sort of deep thirsts in our heart and hungers in our heart, they are all meant to point us to the one person of Jesus who can satisfy them. I, I want to gaze upon the beauty of God. This is, this is a man who has met and experienced, his shovel has struck the treasure. He has experienced the priceless treasure. He's enjoying Jesus. This is why David can say things like this in Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life in your presence. In your presence, O God, there is fullness of joy. Deep, durable delight that ruins you for everything else. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 34, 8. This is why David can say, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Come and just get a taste of this God. I mean, just allow yourself to see the priceless treasure that he is. Now, part of what these sort of passages in the Bible show us is that um, Paul and David, they were not just coming to God as an abstract concept to be studied. 
They were coming to God as a person to be enjoyed, as a priceless treasure to experience. And this is why Asaph, one of the psalmists, can say this about God. Psalm 73, 25 through 26. Whom have I in heaven but you, O God? And there is nothing. That's an absolute word. There is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Okay, now Psalm 73. This is how poetic people, people gifted with poetry, this is how they talk when their shovel has hit the treasure of Jesus. When they've had an experience like Matthew 13, 44, this is how they start talking. When their soul has been dazzled by the person of Jesus, they start saying things like this. And friends, this, Matthew 13, 44, Philippians 3, Psalm 27, Psalm 16, Psalm 34, Psalm 73. This is what Jesus is uniquely capable of doing to a human heart. Jesus is a priceless treasure, uniquely capable of dazzling your heart, satisfying your heart, bringing a deep, durable joy to your heart. That's the point of the parable is to say that. Now let's come back to the parable and ask some other questions of it. What else do we learn in this parable? Uh, what else does it want us to notice? Uh, what other insight does this parable offer us? Hey, and I want to give you two, two other things that we can observe and notice uh, from this parable. Hey, here's the first. This parable is a picture and it's a picture of Christian conversion. It's a picture of a person meeting Jesus. Okay, now let me take a step back and acknowledge there are many pictures or images the Bible gives to help us get a robust sense of what does it mean to be converted to Jesus? What does it mean to be a Christian? So there's a lot of images of Christianity. There's a lot of images of what does it mean uh, to be one of Jesus's. And I'll just give you a couple of examples of this. Uh, when Jesus is calling the disciples, he is oftentimes using this language to call them. He's looking at them and saying, come and follow me. There's imagery of a Christian. So if somebody said, what is a Christian? It would be right to say a Christian is a follower of Jesus. If you're not following Jesus, you're not a Christian, right? That, that's an image. It, it, it's showing us what is a Christian. A follower of Jesus is one thing we could say from the Bible. Uh, there's other imagery in the Bible that is, forms around the idea of belief, so it would be right to say, when somebody says, what is a Christian? It would be right to say a Christian is a believer in Jesus. It's someone who has turned from their sin and is believing in or trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So it would be perfectly right to say a Christian is a believer in Jesus. So that's another sort of image that the Bible would give us to, to help round out the question of what is a Christian. But for people in our particular culture, I think one of the most helpful images the Bible gives to answer the question, what is a Christian, is found in this parable. Matthew 13, 44. It's a picture of conversion. And this parable paints the picture not of a follower of Jesus, 
not of a believer in Jesus. It's painting the picture of an enjoyer of Jesus. So when you think about what does it mean to be a Christian, does that fit into your categories? A Christian is an enjoyer of the person of Jesus. A Christian is a person who has found Jesus to be so valuable that they would gladly lose everything else in their life so that they could get him and enjoy him forever. Do you see Christianity and, and conversion like that? Uh, conversion is the moment a person's heart comes open to Jesus and they begin to enjoy the person of Jesus. Now, why is this a helpful way to, to think about conversion and to see uh, conversion? Uh, well, I think it's because of this. For years, the church has used the language of decision to talk about what it means to be a Christian. The language of decision. So, I mean, even think about the famous hymn. Um, I have decided to follow Jesus. That is the language of decision to talk about what it means to be converted, what it means to come to Jesus. Um, and we do this all the time around here, right? We call people to a decision. A decision to turn from their sin and to turn to Jesus, to put their faith in Jesus, to trust in the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and not their own works to make them right with God. It's, it's the language of decision. And to be clear, the language of decision is right, good language because it is Bible language. And we want to use Bible language to talk about these things. So it's good and right because it's Bible language. So if you think about Acts chapter 2, when Peter is preaching at Pentecost, the crowd looks back and says, Peter, what do we, what do we need to do to be saved? And Peter looks back and says, well, here's what you need to do. You need to repent and be baptized, uh, uh, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sin. So he's saying if, if you want to be forgiven of your sin, you need to do something. You need to decide, repent and be baptized. So that language is right, but hear me. It is not biblically robust. In other words, the Bible has other language to help round out what does it mean to be a Christian. So where the predominant language around conversion, around what does it mean to come to Christ is decisional language, the Bible also uses the language of desire to talk about what it means to be a Christian. So when people ask, what is a Christian? I find that I, I say less often in our culture, uh, I, I use less often the decisional language. Uh, it means to follow Jesus or it means to uh, believe or to trust in Jesus. And I I'm more often than not use the language of desire. W what does it mean to, to be a Christian? Well, it, it means that a person feels this way toward Jesus, Psalm 42.1. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants after God. It's a person who feels that way about Jesus. That's the language of desire. That's the language of our parable. A person has found Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection to be so dazzling, so enjoyable, so satisfying that everything else becomes negotiable. Everything, they're just, they're just ruined for everything else. They'll give everything else in their lives so that they can get Jesus the treasure to enjoy forever. Now, here is the problem with using decisional language exclusively. When all we do is use decisional language, here's the problem with that. You can choose a path without a changed heart. 
Now, I just want to say this as clearly as I can. You can make a decision for Jesus without being Jesus's. That, that is possible to do. You don't have to be a Christian to decide to follow Jesus. And there are thousands of people in our culture who have decided to follow Jesus who are one day going to wake up in the next life and realize they are about to spend forever apart from Jesus. Now, if you want to see this in the scripture, just go to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Go to the end of Matthew 7. Here's what we read from the lips of Jesus. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So that should like sound some alarm bells in us somewhere of like, these are people who are saying, Jesus, you're Lord. I mean, they've made some decisions for Jesus, right? They have made the decision that he's going to be Lord. They have made the decision that we're going to choose to walk down the path toward Jesus. They, a lot of the decisions that we would look at and say yes and amen to you become a Christian, they have made. But Jesus says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Like, do all these amazing things in your name. Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You can choose a path without a changed heart. You can make decisions for Jesus without being a Christian, without being one of his. But you know what you cannot do? You cannot enjoy Jesus without a changed heart. You can't decide to have your heart dazzled by the person of Jesus. You can't force your, yourself to feel rightly about Jesus. You can't make yourself feel about Jesus like Matthew 13 describes him as a tre priceless treasure. You can't make your heart feel that. You, you can't feel about Jesus, what that deer feels for the water, apart from a supernatural work of Jesus in your heart. A apart from God doing that work of bringing your dead heart to life so that for the first time, Jesus goes from unattractive and boring to, oh my, what have I just found? What have I just stumbled into? You, you can't feel that way about God, see God like that, enjoy God like that, apart from a supernatural work of God in your heart. If you want a picture of a converted man, let's just take Augustine as an example. Augustine was an early church father, and uh, he was addicted to sex and lust. He was just a wild man. Uh, uh, he was crazy. And then the Lord rescued him. And listen to how he talked about his conversion. He said, how sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys, which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me. You who are the true, the sovereign joy. You drove all of those lesser joys. You drove all those fruitless joys from me. And you, God, the priceless treasure, you took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure. That is how a converted man talks. 
This is how a, a person, or at least how a converted person feels toward God. This is the changed heart that is required to be a Christian. A Christian is a person who is enjoying God, finding God to be the priceless treasure like this. So part of what this parable is inviting us to do is rethink how we relate to Jesus. Yes to the language of decision. It's biblical language. So yes to following Jesus. Yes to making a decision for Jesus. Yes to trusting Jesus. Yes to believing it. Yes to all of that. And yes to the language of desire. Yes to the language of, have you found Jesus to dazzle your heart, to delight your heart, satisfy your heart? Are you enjoying the person of Jesus? Now hear me. If you are a yes to question one, the language of decision, and a no to question two, the language of desire, you should rethink, am I a Christian? That should give you pause to think, okay, Am I, am I in right standing with, with Jesus? Am I relating to him in a way that a, that a Christian relates to God? Am I enjoying Jesus? And if you're listening in this morning and you are far from Jesus, I just want to be clear what we're inviting you into. We are inviting you into a family of people who are all looking up at our risen Jesus and we just can't get over the fact that we have him forever to enjoy. We've had the shovel in the field and we found something so surprising. We found the priceless treasure of Jesus and it has totally upended our life forever. And we're just inviting you in to look with us toward that Jesus in hopes that you will see the priceless treasure that he is. That you will see the one who can dazzle your heart, delight it forever, satisfy the deepest aches of your heart. I love how Augustine talks. He said, you, God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until our hearts find their rest in you. And so if you're listening in today, here's just the truth. Your heart is going to be restless until it, until it sees and discovers the priceless treasure of Jesus, until it rests in and enjoys him. So we're just inviting you into that, into seeing and discovering the priceless treasure of Jesus. Uh, this, picture, this parable is a picture of conversion. But, but we also see something else that this parable shows us. It's not just the picture of conversion. It's also a picture of the Christian life. Uh, look again at verse 44 in Matthew 13. It starts like this. The kingdom of heaven is like. Now, the kingdom of heaven is a broad way of talking about the whole of the Christian life. Not just conversion but the entirety of your life with Jesus. And, and so what insight does this parable give us about the Christian life? Well, here's the first insight. It, it shows us that the way we come to Jesus, conversion, is the same way that we continue with Jesus. So the way you come is the way you continue. Or we could say it this way. The same treasure you discovered at conversion is the same treasure you must continually rediscover 
throughout your Christian life, throughout your life with Christ. I love the way Paul talks about the good news of Jesus in Ephesians 3. He talks about um, Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection uh, like this. He calls it the unsearchable riches of Christ. That's our priceless treasure. It is unsearchable. Uh, Jesus is so vast, so limitless that Paul says, you're never, you're never going to come to the end of it. It is too vast to ever get all the way through. Paul is saying that Jesus is a treasure without limits. You can spend the rest of your life searching and enjoying the person of Jesus with no fear of ever getting to the bottom of him or ever getting bored with him. Paul is saying that that Jesus offers endless enjoyment. Not just to delight your heart today, to dazzle your heart today, but to dazzle your heart forever. Jesus offers endless enjoyment. The way we come to Jesus is the way we continue with Jesus. Now, what other insight do we have? Well, this parable shows us why that's so important to be continually discovering and rediscovering and searching out the unsearchable riches of Christ. Why is that so important? Here's the next insight this parable offers. Your enjoyment of Jesus determines your faithfulness to Jesus. Your enjoyment, this is why your enjoyment of Jesus is no secondary issue. Your enjoyment of Jesus determines your faithfulness to Jesus. So let's just use the imagery of the parable. Uh, The imagery is of a man selling all that he has. Everything that he owns, all that he has, he is selling. He, all of those things are now negotiable. All those things are now leaving his life. And in a lot of ways, that is a picture of all the sacrifices required along the path of walking with Jesus. And there's thousands and thousands of these moments of sacrifices. There are thousands of moments of hardships that befall a person because they're following Jesus. There's thousands and thousands of moments of having to say no to your flesh and no to sin and no to temptation for Jesus' sake. So let's ask the question, what enabled this man to give everything away with gladness? What enabled him to do that? Answer, his enjoyment of Jesus. Jesus dazzled his heart. That's what enabled him to give away everything he had with gladness. And I wanna just take a moment to look at you, the people of Stonegate. I love the people of our church. And when I think about what's in front of all of our lives, it kind of scares me to death. Because I know that in, in front of some of our lives, in the next season of our life, the Lord is gonna walk us down into the valley of the shadow of death. And it's gonna be so hard. For others in the room uh, and who are listening in, the Lord is about to lead you to places of sacrifices that you never would have dreamed you could ever make. Maybe that's sacrifices with your time. Maybe that's sacrifices for how he wants to use your giftings. Maybe that is sacrifices around money and generosity. The Lord is just gonna call you into a moment and moments where you are gonna deeply invest into his plans and purposes in the world. Deep moments of sacrifice. And the truth for all of us, we are all in the next season of our life and in the next upcoming years and decades, we are all in a life and death struggle against sin. 
every one of us in the room, we are all so capable of wrecking our life. There's no one in this room more than about three minutes away from ruining everything, right? So, so we're all in a life and death struggle with sin. And if somebody came to me and said, how do we remain faithful? Here is the one, if I had to, to give one response, here is the one thing I would wanna say to that person. And I wanna say to, to us as a church family, if we're going to remain faithful, here is the one thing we need. And that is to keep our hearts satisfied in Jesus. To enjoy Jesus, to keep delighting in Jesus, to keep our hearts dazzled by Jesus to make this the goal of our everyday, oh God, man, I want my heart to just explode, erupt with affection and want and longings for you, oh God. And on days where we don't, we, we acknowledge that to God and we come to God and say, God, I want to want that. Help me, help me to keep our hearts satisfied in Jesus. How, how do we do that? How do we keep our hearts satisfied in Jesus? Well, let's just use the imagery of this parable. If the treasure is out in the field, we walk out into the field every day with a shovel in our hand and we put the shovel down into the dirt where the treasure is, down into the dirt of the scriptures. We open up the Bible every day and we read, not just because we're wanting more facts about this or that, but because we want our hearts satisfied in the person of Jesus. And listen, every time you open up the Bible and read, you're not going to have some magical experience. But every now and then, that shovel is going to strike the treasure. And your heart is going to erupt with a want and a love and a desire for Jesus. And, and when your heart hits the treasure and you feel that toward Jesus, your heart is satisfied in Jesus then you'll be ready for whatever the day holds. So we get out into the field, shovel in our hand, and we keep the shovel into the dirt, into the dirt of prayer, making space to be with Jesus, to talk to Jesus, to listen to Jesus. Prayer is a way that we get to commune with God. We get to invite Jesus deeper into our heart. We get to discover more of his heart. And in every moment of prayer, you're not going to have some magical moment. But along the way, as you're praying, the Lord is going to speak to you in such personal and tender and appropriate ways, and your heart's just going to come alive to him. And when your heart comes alive to Jesus and your heart is satisfied in Jesus, you'll be able to faithfully endure whatever comes your way. So how do we enjoy Jesus? Well, we get out into the field and we keep our shovel into the dirt, into the dirt of just what we might call everyday life. It is amazing in our everyday life how many little joys fill it up. Graciously given to us by the hand of God, just little gifts of joys. We might call them earthly joys. And every little joy, every earthly joy is meant to function in your life like a signpost so that you don't stop at this little earthly joy. When you stop at this little earthly joy, it's called idolatry in the Bible. It's a signpost. So it's, it's meant to, as we're experiencing this earthly joy, it's meant to lift our eyes above that little joy all the way to the person of Jesus. That's what every little earthly joy in your life is designed to do. 
It's meant to, to help you see beyond this little joy, this sign, all the way to the source, Jesus. So the next time you bite into a great steak, don't stop at the steak. I mean, a steak is a, it's an amazing thing. Every time I bite into a steak, I have this feeling. I cannot believe food can be this good. I feel that every time I bite into a steak. But don't stop at the steak. We're supposed to see through the steak. It's supposed to be a signpost pointing us to Jesus, the bread of life who can satisfy the deepest parts of our heart. Why did God create something like intimacy? Here's why. It's meant to be a signpost, not so that we would stop at the sign, but so that we could lift our eyes up over the sign and see the delight that Jesus offers his people. Why has God given us such incredible scenery to witness and to see? It's a sign. And we're supposed to lift our eyes up above the sign to the beauty that is the person of Jesus. So church, the treasure, Jesus himself is out in the field. Let's get our shovels out and make the aim of our everyday life to keep that shovel down into the dirt so that we can strike the treasure, so that our hearts can stay dazzled by, delighted in the person of Jesus every day of our life. And let me leave you with this warning from John Wesley. This is why this is so important. He says this, how uncomfortable a condition must a person be in who has the fear of God, but not the love of God? How uncomfortable a condition a person must be in who has only the toils of following Jesus, and there's a lot of them, aren't there? There's a million sacrifices, a million hard things that come along the way of following Jesus. How uncomfortable a condition must a person be in who has only the toils of following Jesus and not the joys of Jesus. This man, this is a description of his lack of comfort and his miserable condition. He says, he has not enough of Jesus to, or he has enough of Jesus to make him miserable, but not enough of him to make him happy. And I just want to look at every one of us in here this morning. Don't stop with enough of Jesus to make you miserable. Keep the shovel out in the field so that you can have the joys of Jesus that will keep your heart satisfied and dazzled forever. Amen? Let's pray together. I want to give you just some space to still your heart before the Lord and to ask the Lord to press into you what would be most helpful, to wipe away the things that wouldn't be. Jesus is a priceless treasure. And this parable offers a picture for us, a picture of Christian conversion, of what it looks like for a person to be rescued and saved by Jesus. 
Yes, it's a person who is following Jesus and believing in Jesus and trusting in Jesus. And yes, it is a person who has found Jesus to be that priceless treasure that is satisfying their heart. Is that you? Is that you? Are you banking on the language of decision or both the language of decision and the language of desire? And this parable is a picture of the Christian life, what we need, an ongoing discovery of Jesus. So Father, would you give us that? Would you give us that? As we keep our shovels out and down into the dirt, Father, would you, would you show us more of the person of Jesus? God, would you dazzle our hearts? Would you delight our hearts? God, would you keep us satisfied in Jesus, enjoying Jesus? God, do that work in us. Every day of our lives, do that miracle, that ongoing miracle in us. And it's in the good name of Jesus that we ask it. Amen.